really what we have here in chapter 16. We have first uh, the conversion of Lydia and her household, and then uh, we looked at last week the conversion of this slave girl who was possessed. And that possession enabled her to uh, be a fortune teller, and she was a slave girl, and her masters were making a a mint off of her and her ability to uh, tell people's fortunes. Uh, and then along comes Paul and Silas and his missionary team, and um, they're going through and they're telling people about Christ, and she's following along behind them, proclaiming that, yes, these people are the representatives of the one true God and tell the way of salvation. And this went on for what we guessed to be a couple of days until Paul turned around and said, come out, demon, and the demon came out. And, of course, that's, that's where we, we show up here in this sense. Um, where we get to at this point in verse, oh, uh, we'll start. Uh, we'll start in 19, and then we'll go through 40. Okay, so uh, that kind of gives us an, an introduction up into our passage today. So, if you're able, would you stand with me, and uh, I'll read the Word of God. Heavenly Father, come upon us today with your Holy Spirit, that we might have the insight and the understanding that we need to not only hear and know and understand your word, but that we might live it out. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Acts 16, now begin in 19, following. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs, which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Now, just as an aside, they were beaten by people who were called lictors. Lictors were kind of a... uh, uh, an independent police force that roamed the town with rods and, and, and staffs. And when the chief priest or somebody said, this is a bad guy, they all went and beat the stuffing out of him. That's the kind of the short version of what they did. So they tell them to go and beat up on Paul. And when they had inflicted many blows, verse 23, upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, now, sorry to interrupt again, but remember, they had just cast out a demon from a girl who was enabled by that possession to tell the future of people, to fortune tell. And everybody in town knew it. So they are very concerned about how to keep these guys locked away. I mean, if they can cast out a demon, what are they going to do once they hit prison? Are they going to be secure in that jail? Okay, so, again, sorry, Uh, verse 24. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison, this would be what we would call the dungeon, and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. 
And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. So he, they're locked in the, what's it say? The inner prison. And as I mentioned, it's probably what we would term the dungeon, the, the central portion of the prison. And, and prisons in these days were not nice places. And, and they were locked away so that they couldn't get out because they were afraid of the power that was clearly demonstrated in the life of Paul and Silas. And then not only were they put in the innermost portion of the prison, the most secure, their feet were secured in the stocks. And then they were locked in like that. Now, stocks, we, we traditionally see the kind of the Middle Ages where the... the, the um, the thief or whatever has their head in their arms and people come along and throw rotten garbage at them and things like that, kind of as a punishment. Well, this was to keep them in prison. Not only in a prison, but their feet were locked in the stocks. They didn't want them going anywhere. Now, the jailer was probably a retired military guy, so he knew his business. He knew, most importantly, what happened to jailers whose prisoners escaped. And in, under Roman law, if your prisoner escaped, you were assigned to carry out his sentence and his punishment. So he apparently has quite a houseload of prisoners here, and he is very concerned when the earthquake comes and he finds that the doors are open. Now let me, let me try to paint a picture here for you. Uh, this isn't electronic locks where maybe an earthquake would trip the breaker, and the locks would open like that or anything. These are big, thick wooden doors, and they have sliding bolts. Sliding bolts that go into the wall this way, sliding bolts that go into the ceiling this way, and there's stone walls, and a sliding bolt that goes into the floor this way. So just think of that. The earthquake shook, and it had to undo bolts in three different directions, And then not only did it have to undo the bolts on the door so that they would open, but what else was turned loose? The stocks, the chains. They fell from the people. They fell from those who were held captive. And it it doesn't say just Paul and Silas. Um, They were in there singing, verse 26, and suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Now, how many people were in this prison? It doesn't say. But all who were chained were now unchained. Now, when the jailer awakes and sees what has happened, he thinks, you know, I'm not going to serve out these punishments. I'm done. And in the Roman days, you know, suicide was not looked upon uh, as bad. It was an honorable death over over against uh, punishment like this. So he's ready to kill himself. And Paul says, no, no, don't do that. Now, Paul says, we are all here and we remain here. Now, understand, Paul had been unjustly imprisoned. He had been unjustly beaten. 
and they were thrown in the inner prison and put in stocks and comes about midnight, what is it that they were doing? Singing. Okay? Now, they were singing. Uh, Keep your finger in Acts. Turn over to to Romans chapter 5. This is not what comes natural to people. Think about in your heart what you would be doing if you had been just, just done this great work, let's say for the Lord, and then that it healed, cast out this demon. This girl had been restored. Uh, hopefully she had been embraced by the church and come to faith. Uh, and then uh, unjustly you had been beaten and dragged before a court which was supposed to give you justice. And remember, Paul is a Roman citizen and he has certain rights. Now, he's not mentioned this yet, but he has certain rights that have been violated because of what they have done. And now you're thrown in the stocks and here you are at midnight. This, usually at midnight I'm asleep. You know, I, I haven't seen a, a midnight in a long time. Okay, So New Year's Eve, uh, you know... I hope you all who stay up late enjoy it. Um, Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 3. Well, let me, let me read in verse 1. I'll start Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, Knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. Hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. So he uses the same word, um, verse 2, though, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. The glory of God and tribulations seem to be equally uh, exciting, okay? equally empowering in, in the same sense that they are so excited about the grace of God that has come to them. They are so excited about the chance and the opportunity to face trials and tribulations. We exult in our tribulations. Why would Paul say that he exalts in his tribulations? He's being persecuted for whose sake? For the sake of Christ. Okay? So, does that mean we should all go out and get persecuted this week? Hmm. I'll leave that to your choice. Okay? Uh, Back to Acts 16. So, here is Paul, and he is in prison unjustly for the things of Christ, and he is exalting. He and Silas. Verse 25. But about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise. Hmm, Probably from the Old Testament, just some of those um, uh, Hillel songs, the Hallelujah songs or songs of ascent as they were going up to Jerusalem. He's probably singing those or maybe some that that he and Silas had had made up themselves as they were there. And the prisoners were listening to them. So yes, Paul is in chains and Silas is in chains and they're at the innermost, probably in a room uh, not much bigger than the two of them and their stocks and they're singing their hearts out and everybody in prison listens to them. Now you'll notice that when Paul, uh, later when he's imprisoned in Rome, he is chained between two guards and he spends all of his time chained between two guards telling them about Jesus Christ. 
because they were a literally a captive audience. Where were they going to go? They had to stay there and make sure that Paul didn't get away. And Paul said, well, I have you here. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you the thing that will change your life. So they are singing and, and in a sense, presenting the gospel to all those who are in the prison. And there is an earthquake. And we'll catch up as the Philippian jailer comes in. And he says, I'm, uh, life's over. I'm going to kill myself. And Paul says, wait. We are all still here. Paul knows what his fear is. And he says, wait, we are still here. And then he asks the question. And in reality, in this portion of chapter 16, there are two questions. One is very clear that he asks, what must I do to be saved? And the other one is what we will deal with next week about he and his entire household being baptized. That is not a question that is asked. That is one that has been kind of intimated at. What does that mean, that he and his entire household were baptized? We'll look at that next week. For today, the question comes out of verse 30. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, he is not concerned about his temporal safety, okay? Because Paul has already declared to him, we are all still here. Don't kill yourself. Don't worry. We are still here sitting in our prison cells with no chains on and the doors all the way open, but we're all still here. Well, this is a moment for the jailer. And he is facing the most important question of his life what must I do to be saved what must I do to be saved verse 31 believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved you and your household in almost every city that they evangelized on this their their second missionary journey the positive response to the gospel is described as saving faith saving faith but it is belief in the lord jesus christ see that 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 one word lord is very important because it's not just savior and saving faith it is saving faith in the lord jesus christ lord not only hints at but it commands the one word that so many of us hate to say submission we must live in submission to our lord if he is going to be our Savior, he will also be your Lord, and that is part of the package. And you can't do without either one. We need saving, and we must submit ourselves to our Lord. Well, as with Lydia and the, pers- the salvation that, that came upon her household, uh, the head of the household, this has spiritual implications. And as I said, we're going to kind of look at that next week when it comes to the baptizing of the entire household. But understand that each individual is responsible for their salvation. It's one of those, those, those things. There's no, there's no grandchildren in heaven. Okay, I forget who said that. Somebody famous. But um, it's not as if, well, mom and dad and grandpa and grandma were sound believers. And I've been going to that church ever since they were there. And, you know, they were founders of that church. And that means I'm on the fast track to heaven too. No, that does not mean anything. What means something is when you ask the question, what must I do to be saved? And the response is, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And it's not just the belief, an intellectual grasp of it. Okay? It is a life-changing issue. 
Now, your life may have changed when you were six years old and came to Christ in Sunday school, and you've lived that out. Or your life may change at the last moment of life, like the thief on the cross, when he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But it is a life-changing issue nonetheless. You cannot remain the same. You have taken off the old and you put on the new. Paul talks about in Corinthians, like an old set of clothes. You get rid of the things of sin. You cast them off. You put on the things of righteousness and holiness. So what must I do to be saved? This, if you have a to-do list that you have through the week, or maybe you go into the office and you turn on your computer and hear all the things that are scheduled out for you to do this week, this question, dealing with this question, ought to be on the top of your list. If, if you don't know Christ, if you have a doubts about your salvation, this is the question you must deal with this week. In fact, this afternoon, you must deal with it. What must I do to be saved? Now, first you'll notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, be baptized and you shall be saved. Yes, we'll see next week that they are baptized. But he doesn't say you have to be baptized to be saved. Baptism is not part of the saving work of Christ. There are people who have who've perished uh, in this world without being baptized, who I bet are still, or still have gone to heaven, the thief on the cross, as an example. But it's, it does say you will be baptized if you can, you should be. But he doesn't say that's a saving work. Paul doesn't say take the Lord's Supper and you will be saved. He doesn't say that that's part of the work of salvation. That's part of the continuing growth in grace that the Lord commands us to be a part of, but it's not a saving work. Paul doesn't say to the jailer, get yourself in local church and become a choir member and, and uh, you know, teach Sunday school and uh, go there every week and jump through these hoops and you will be saved. He doesn't say that either. Those things do not save us. Paul did not also say, when he asked the question, what must I do to be saved? He did not say, you don't have to do anything. You're already saved. Don't you know that God's grace is, is, covers everybody's sin and everybody goes to heaven? And now is this the time for you to come to the realization that we are all on the way? Paul doesn't say that because that's wrong. That's not true in any fashion. The death of Jesus for sinners was not designed to save people apart from the faith. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Apart from faith. Faith is in a sense the means or the vehicle from which we understand. If you ask did Jesus pay a ransom for everybody in the world? Jesus died to save those who are his. His sacrifice is of infinite worth. It is of infinite value. It is efficient for those who belong to him. Whom the Father draws unto himself. They experience salvation. Paul says if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You are able to do that because you have, in a sense, come through the, the, the uh, we'll call it a filter of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift. You have been given faith. What must I do to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? I must receive the gift of faith. Don't I have faith on my own? Apparently not. Apparently, it says right here, faith to be saved is a gift. So what should you do? Well, if you don't saved, you ought to pray that the Lord will give you faith. You ought to go to him and say, Lord... 
There's something missing in my life. There is this emptiness, and, and I don't, can't find the answer to that in this world. Give me the faith to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, for I desire to be saved. He will work in your life. Paul makes it clear. The way of salvation is to believe, and you will be saved. It's faith, it's faith alone, it's faith in Christ Jesus alone. You have to abandon any hope that you can achieve the greatest need of your life by your own efforts. You have to abandon any hope that you can jump through enough hoops to make yourself good enough that God would receive you. God is a perfect God. There is no error within him. There is no sin. There is no corruption. We have been tainted by these things, and to be in his presence means we'd have to be perfect and none of us are or none of us can possibly be perfect now god does not believe for us but he gives us that faith so that we might believe there are two obstacles that i'm going to list today to this belief now you probably could come up with 20 or 30 or 40 obstacles in today's world to believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved. I just picked two, okay, because that's all the time I felt we had. The first obstacle is our own sinfulness. The first obstacle is our own sinfulness. We do not want to admit to the idea that I might need saved from something, okay, anything. It's I can take care of myself. I'm not so bad. I'm not as bad as him. As long as I'm better than one person, then God will, will accept me. It is a blow to our ego and our psyche and the way that we look at the world to think that I am not good enough to get to heaven or there's something that I can't do to make me right to get to heaven or the fact is, is what I said Paul did not say to the jailer everybody's gone so just get on board it is a blow to us we have to admit that not only is it our own sinfulness that we have to get over we also have to understand that that sinfulness does not want to let me change okay He's our Lord and Savior. So if he calls me, there's an expectation that my life will be different. That I will now be living in a different fashion than I did before. I know the truth. I'm no longer bound by the chains of sin. Now I can live to the things of Christ. We will change when we are saved. The first obstacle to hearing the right answer to the question is our sinfulness. Now, Jonathan Edwards... Has a, imagine this, has a great sermon dealing with sin. Okay? He's probably got 150 dealing with sin. This one deals with, quote, the relative state of those who are in an unconverted condition. And as you can guess, Edward says it is dreadful. That relative state of the unconverted is dreadful. Well, let me quote from you a little bit from Jonathan Edwards. The unconverted... They are without God in the world. They have no interest or part in God. He is not their God. He hath declared he will not be their God, Hosea chapter 1. God and believers have a mutual covenant relation and right to each other. They are his people and he is their God. But he is not the covenant God of those who are in an unconverted state. There is a great alienation and estrangement between God and the wicked. He is not their father and portion. They have nothing to challenge of God. They have no right to any of his attributes. The believer can challenge a right in the power of God, in his wisdom and holiness, his grace and love. All are made over to him to be for his benefit. 
but the unconverted can claim no right to any of God's perfections. They have no God to protect and defend them in this evil world, to defend them from sin or from Satan or any evil. They have no God to guide and direct them in any doubts or difficulties, to comfort and support their minds under afflictions. They are without God in all their affairs, in all their business they undertake, in their family affairs and in their personal affairs and in their outward concerns and in the concerns of their souls. They are without God. Why? Because they are in an unconverted state. See, there's, there's no intermediate state here between uh, I'm, I'm without God and I'm with God. There's no medium state here saying I'm, I'm kind of in the middle considering whether I want to be with God or without God. You either belong to him or you do not. You either receive the benefits of being a child of God within the covenant or you get nothing. Because when you're over here in an unconverted state, your father is whom? The devil. Satan. That's who your allegiance is to. Whether you know it or not, whether you purposely say it or not, that's who your allegiance is. You might be apathetic to Satan. You might be uncaring and not concerned. You might be ignorant of his works. But yet, if you're unconverted, that's who you belong to. And it is not until the things of Christ come upon you that you belong to him. A little bit more from Edwards. They are not only without God, but the wrath of God abides upon them. John 3, verse 36. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. There is no peace between God and them, but God is angry with them every day. He is not only angry with them, but that that to a dreadful degree. There is a kind of fire kindled in God's anger. It burns like fire. Wrath abides upon them, which, if they should be executed, would plunge them into the lowest hell and make them miserable there to all eternity. They have provoked the one holy uh, of Israel to anger. God has been angry with them ever since they began to sin. He has been provoked by them every day ever, ever since they exercised any reason, and he is provoked by them more and more every hour. The flame of his wrath is continually burning. There are many now in hell that never provoked God more than they, nor so much as many of them. Wherever they go, they go about with the dreadful wrath of God abiding on them. It goes on and on. I, I just, how much, how long would you have spent in Edwards' church hearing messages like that? Okay, and, and some could only take it so long before the Lord came upon them. They understood they were in an unconverted state, and they threw themselves in the aisle seeking God's mercy and God's salvation. Our sin is the first obstacle, and the results of that sin, the consequences of that sin, is that God's wrath is upon us. And if we are not moved out of that unconverted state, then his wrath will be upon us for all eternity. Now, what's the second of two obstacles? Remember, I only picked two, and you probably could come up with a a whole bunch more. The second might be our own fault in the sense of within the church. I'm not saying within this building, but the Christian church in in the world today. There are some bad teachings about what it means to be saved. Let me give you two things to think about. The first, as we go, as I hope if you, if you stayed in Ephesians chapter 2, the first is that salvation... Yeah, let me stress this. Salvation is by grace 
not by works. But that doesn't mean that salvation is free. I hope you understand that. It doesn't mean that salvation is free. Look at chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 and 10 of Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So it's by grace through the vehicle of faith. Faith is a gift that is given to us, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So you've been saved not by any work except the work of Jesus Christ. It is his mercy. It is his grace. It is his sacrifice given for us. And we don't deserve it, but it is given for us. Why? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, Flip over one page, back to Ephesians chapter 1. For good works prepared beforehand. We are saved, we are given faith, saved by grace. It is the work of God so that no one can boast. Why are we saved? For the good works that he has prepared beforehand. How far beforehand? Verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So when did the Lord decide that you would be his? Before the foundation of the world. When did he prepare works for you to do once you had received grace and were saved by faith? From before the foundation of the world. You think God doesn't have a plan for you? You don't think he's sitting up there working it out day by day? Well, what's he going to do tomorrow? I don't know. I better come up with something. Before the foundations of the world. This is when the Lord had seen you plan for your salvation and plan for the works that you would do. We cannot earn salvation. That does not mean it is free. It is undeserved. It is totally the work of Christ. It is costly. It demands everything from you. Okay? You can't say, well, I'm saved. Great. Now you just sit in your lazy boy and you just, you just soak it all in and know that your eternal destiny is now secure by the work of Christ. He has called you to live differently. It demands everything that you have. Everything that you are now belongs to your Lord Jesus Christ. Not just Savior, but your Lord Jesus Christ. All you have to do is read the book of James, read the book of 1 John, the Sunday school class, we, we just started, started on this. And we read through a lot of portions of that that talk about the demands of the Christian life. First John says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You have to keep the commandments. We are saved for the good works that the Lord has for us, that he has prepared for us. Okay? Your life will be different because of saving grace. Let me, let me tell you, when I worked in Youth for Christ, we used to play this game, and it was called, If You Love Me, Honey, You'll Smile. Anybody know that game? Okay. Dan, the youth, youth guy, yeah. So we'd be in a room. One person was picked, and they would be it, so to speak. And they would come, and they could sit on your lap, or they could tickle your chin, or try to tickle you, and, and, and get you to say, they had to say to you, If you love me, honey, you'll smile. And you had to respond without any emotion on your face. I love you, honey, but I just can't smile. Okay, now, 
I had all the ticklishness removed from me early in life, okay? So I wasn't ticklish. And I could, you know, I'd watched enough Star Trek, so I knew about Mr. Spock, who showed no emotion. So the person would come, and they'd sit on my lap, and they'd start to work on me and, and say, Hun, if you love me, honey, you'll smile. And I was like, I love you, honey, but I just can't smile. So I was good at it. Jesus comes and says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Can, can you say to him, oh, I love you, Lord, but I just can't keep your commandments? No, no, that, that, that's not an option for us. If you love Jesus, you will keep his commandments. Will you do it perfectly? Of course not. But you will strive in all that you are for obedience to his word, to fellowship with the body of Christ to drink in the things of Christ from his word, to develop your own spiritual life with the Lord, your prayer life, you will apply it in each aspect of your life. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So what must I do to be saved? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. What will my life look like after that? You will strive to keep his commandments. Now each of us has to ask ourselves, well, do I do that? Or how well do I do that? It is a process of growth in understanding that. If you've been a believer for 50 years and you look at your life and go, do I keep his commandments? And you're shocked at maybe at your lack of obedience, you'll be better get it together. Today is the day. If you have come here today and you said, I don't know what he's talking about, about being saved, but something in my heart calls me today. There's something in my heart that, that is missing in my life. I don't know what it is. Well, today, let me tell you what it is. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that today is the day of your salvation. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, this gift of salvation is, is simple and straightforward, but yet... It is so far beyond our capacity to understand. Why would you, the perfect and righteous and holy creator of all that we see, care about us? We who have offended you with our sin. We who cannot be in your presence because of the taint of sin in all portions of our being. But you and your love for us and your perfect son in his obedience to your will have come into, has come into this world and has given his life as the perfect sacrifice to cleanse us of sin, to restore us to a relationship with you. We offended you, yet you came and provided the means for the cleansing of that offense. Lord, move in our hearts today. If we have never believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then move in our hearts today. If we have in the past and stand as believers, then show us how we might live out the commandments of Christ. How we in our lives today and this week and forevermore might walk in obedience with him. And strive that he would be seen in all that we do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.